So Ben's just read to us uh, a famous and a captivating scripture from the Old Testament. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of a valley filled with dry, scattered bones. And before his eyes, the bones start to rattle and shake. Uh, and you can picture it, can't you? Uh, they fly together, they form whole skeletons, and then they're covered with sinews and flesh and skin, so the word says, and they come alive and stand to attention, an exceedingly great army. Now, it's a vision. It's not, uh, it's not reality um, in, that, uh, in that these bones, bones don't really come together, but it's reality in that it's a vision that truly came to the prophet Ezekiel. But in this vision from God, there is one ingredient that transforms the valley of dry bones into an army, and that is the breath of God. That is God's own spirit. Uh, And God's breath is administered in this case by prophecy, by the preaching, uh, by Ezekiel of God's word. Now we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're mostly unpacking... uh, I'm actually going to bring us back to the start of chapter 15 where Paul says, uh, we didn't read this, but Paul says to the people, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Paul is giving a quick history lesson to uh, the people he's speaking to. Uh, Paul obediently preached the gospel to the Corinthians. They believed and in so doing they passed from death to life as God's Spirit filled them, and they literally now stand, like the valley of once dry bones, responding to God's life-giving word. And Paul gives a very, particularly, a very particular summary of what the gospel is that he preached. Uh, he says, uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and he appeared to Cephas, the twelve, more than 500 at one time, James, all the apostles, and to me. Paul highlights something very interesting here. Often, uh, if pressed to give a snapshot summary of the gospel, we might choose to highlight the first bit. I know I, I do this frequently and it's not wrong. Christ died for our sins. That's a pretty good summary of the gospel. It's not wrong. Last week, we celebrated communion, the ceremonial remembrance of Jesus' death, which, with really no mention throughout that, uh, throughout that uh, procedure uh, of his resurrection. Uh, a couple of weeks ago at our Christmas carol service, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, I made the decision to make a beeline in the message for the death of Jesus because I wanted people to hear the message, not just of a beautiful baby, but of the way of salvation, forgiveness for sins. But notice how Paul shifts the emphasis here when he unpacks uh, the gospel in summary. He says Christ died for our sins and he really, really died because he was buried, he goes on to say. But then he goes on to say he was raised on the third day and he really, really emphasizes this. I mean, really, really, really emphasizes this because he lists all of the people that Jesus appeared to alive. Uh, Verse 2 Uh, Cephas, the Twelve, more than 500, James, all the apostles, and even finally to me, uh, in Paul's words himself. Now, the reason for Paul's emphasis on Jesus as a resurrection at this point, there's two reasons at least for his emphasis here. One is purely contextual. Uh, It's purely related to what's going on for the people in Corinth that he's writing to. 
Uh, we learn from the passage that we read uh, later on that there are influential people in the church who are saying that there is no such thing as the resurrection. And so Paul needs to correct this error. Uh, in verse 12, uh, this is what I read earlier in the service, Paul Uh, Paul repeats, he says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Clearly, some of them are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And so in the retelling of the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul emphasizes that his resurrection is part of that good news, the gospel, because there are people who are actively contradicting it, and so he needs to correct them on that. But the second reason Paul goes into it here is to show that not only is Jesus's resurrection part of the gospel jesus's resurrection is an essential part of of the gospel it's fair enough to summarize it as you know christ died for the forgiveness of sins but we need to recognize when we summarize that we're leaving bits out and it's essential to know to be aware that jesus is alive paul tells us three bad news implications Uh, if Jesus is not raised from the dead. One good news implication of the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead. And then he gives two action points at the very end. Uh, This is from our passage, verse 12 to, was it about 34? So first, the bad news. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. This really does prove... Uh, Paul's own point, doesn't it, that the resurrection of Jesus is essential to the gospel. Because if the gospel was only that first bit, Christ died for your sins, like Paul began back in verse 3, then the job is all wrapped up at the cross. We don't need an empty tomb three days later, just a cross. But Paul, who says Christ died for our sins, says that if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile vain, useless, and you are still in your sins. That's because there's no victory in the cross alone, because the cross is a famous symbol of suffering, shame, death. It's a bitter end, and that's it, if that's where the story ends. It's not a good news story at all, it's bad news. If Jesus, who came full of hope and promise, died and that's the end. And the earliest evidence we have uh, historically and and in the Gospels uh, suggests that for a couple of days after Jesus' death, no one was psyching themselves up to kick off a movement in Jesus' honour. When he died, just the, the floor fell from beneath them. All his disciples went into hiding. They were crushed with disappointment. They were afraid of the authorities and the crowds. They knew that with Jesus' death was the end and no more hope. Death is the curse of sin. If death prevails, then sin has found no cure. There's no solution, there's no answer. People who are corrupt in spirit can only expect the corruption and decay of their body as well if there is no resurrection. The other bad news implication, if Jesus doesn't live is that we are most to be pitied, Paul says in verse 19. The whole thought in verse 19 that Paul says, he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. 
that's worth thinking about for a bit. If in, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people the most to be pitied. We're the worst. We're the suckers. It's worth asking the question why. What makes us the most sorry bunch if Jesus doesn't live? I mean, wouldn't that just leave us in the same boat as everyone else? Uh, everyone who doesn't believe. If Jesus doesn't live, are we worse off? Really? Well, Paul thinks so. And I think there are three factors to why we are worse off than anyone if Jesus doesn't live. The first uh, is persecution. Now, this is partly uh, related to the context that Paul speaks in, uh, and, it's part, and it's much more related uh, today to people in other cultures than our own. Uh, persecution is real, and it goes on today. But right here and now, there is very little in terms of real persecution for placing your hope in Christ. Now, there might be uh, str- like growing themes of animosity, uh, sometimes even aggression in our own culture, but really very little. But Paul himself, in his early days, he triggered a wave of persecution against the Christians before he was converted himself, before he met the risen Jesus. And when he changed sides, he got as good as he'd given in his former life because the persecution turned against him and he he suffered uh, as much or more uh, than any of the other apostles. But whether or not persecution is something you feel keenly in your own life, uh, the Christian call is to side with Christ through thick and thin and to absolutely expect persecution. That's what Jesus set up his own followers immediately to expect, persecution. Uh, Even within your family as mother turns against daughter and brother against sister. So one reason we are the most to be pitied is persecution. The second is self-denial. The grace of God teaches us to say no to many things. In Titus chapter 2, verse 12, it says, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness uh, and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Now, is it true that self-denial is a cause for pity? Yes and no, I think. I say it is. Uh, But cautiously, I say it is uh, because I do think it's included in what Paul is on about here. I think he's referencing this a a little later on in verse 32. He says, you know, if Christ isn't raised, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Let's just, you know, enjoy the pleasures now while we get it, while we can, and not deny ourselves because, you know, this is all we've got to hope for. And there is also truth uh, in my own experience, uh, personally, and, and perhaps you can relate, uh, that uh, there are pleasures that I've denied myself in the course of my Christian life that my friends have indulged in. There are pleasures I've indulged in in the course of my Christian life that I've subsequently felt guilty for because of my convictions and because I know that I've sinned. But these same pleasures some of my friends have indulged in without conscience without guilt, without pang. So yes, there is in following Christ a sense of missing out. I think maybe that's our most keen in our early days. But there are other elements of my experience that go against this, that suggest that, um, that it's not so pitiable at all to deny yourself if it means following Christ. Uh, most of the things that I have said no to in Christ, these days I'm thankful 
for that fact that I said no. Hangovers hurt. Not getting drunk is healthy. Sobriety improves relationships and leaves less things to be embarrassed or guilty about. I'm thinking back to you know, some of my early college days when I chose one course and my friends were choosing another. Today, being a husband of one wife, living in faithfulness to her seven years tomorrow, has brought every joy and satisfaction I could have hoped for. Living a life of restraint reduces pain. Pursuing wisdom over experience produces fruit. Disobedience to God produces its own really particular kind of carnage in life. So yes, Christians are called to a higher standard of self-denial than most, and that comes with an element of missing out, but it's not the greatest pity by far. The third reason for pity is easily overlooked, I reckon. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied simply because we have lived a lie. The pragmatics or the practicalities of it could frankly go either way. Following Christ may actually improve almost every metric or standard of your life. You know, choosing you know, a Christian ethic may actually be for your good whether or not Jesus lives. And I actually do think there's, uh, there's merit. I wouldn't choose a different life now having tasted the one of following Jesus. But if it's all for a lie, then it is a waste, isn't it? It's been a waste. If it's in pursuit of a delusion, then I have to say you've actually done violence to yourself. But since Christ lives, since he does live, the flip side of this equation is actually true. We are not the most to be pitied. The opposite is true. We have the greatest and truest joy in this life of following him, in this life now, and in the life to come, the greatest and surest joy. All the pity goes to everyone else the people whose hope is only for this life. Anyone who has laid up all their treasure in their bank account or their reputation or even in their own relationships, that person is the most to be pitied because that's the lie. Those things are bound up in this world of decay. They can only please us for so long and then they're gone. There is good news In Christ, verse 22, in Christ shall all be made alive. Now this falls uh, between verses 18 and 28 within a timeline of, uh, of things that have occurred already and things that are to come. In the past, Paul acknowledges in verse 18 that some have fallen asleep. There are people following Jesus now, uh, or following, who followed Jesus in their life who are now dead. They've fallen asleep. Or... What does following Jesus mean for them? Well, verse 20 says, tells us about another thing in the past. We've been talking about it all morning. Christ has been raised from the dead. And now looking to the future, in verse 20, Paul says that Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits, meaning the first bundle from the harvest, indicating a great harvest yet to come. Jesus is the first to be raised from the dead, indicating that 
all in him will be raised from the dead. And then after that, after he has returned and raised uh, his people to life, it says the end will come in verse 24. But more accurately, this is uh, the the end times or the era of the end. Not the end as in bam, cut off, finish, nothing, you know, just oblivion after that. It's like the storybooks. It's a happily ever after end. Uh, You've reached the end of the book, but there's a future that sort of continues after you close the page. The characters live on. The story continues. Verse 24, uh, Paul says, He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The presence of sin and death uh, and others of Christ's enemies, uh, the fact that these things are still present today doesn't prove that Jesus doesn't reign. Rulers still have their enemies. Part of the exercise of their rule is stamping out those enemies, even while they reign. But a time is still coming. The end times, this era of the end when all sin and sickness will truly be a thing of the past, finally stamped out. And those whose bodies have perished and have died will be raised. But only, Paul says, for those in Christ. All those in Christ shall be made alive. This hope, this special hope, this particular joy is reserved only for those whose trust is in Jesus, whose sins are forgiven by him. Therefore, he says, uh, Paul gives us a couple of uh, implications. Now, the one I'm not going to say we must do, therefore, is what he says in verse 29, baptise the dead. That seems like one implication that, uh, that he talks about. In verse 29, uh, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf. Now that is a that is a curious thing because we don't talk about uh, baptism on behalf of the dead uh, on a regular basis. Um, it, it is not a practice that's been typical in the church. Um, and so, what do we do? How do we understand this? What's going on? Well, I've just got to say, in all my reading, there is just a great deal of mystery around this. Uh, we don't know exactly what was going on, but it does seem like the most obvious thing probably was going on, is that within the church, uh, people were being baptised on behalf of people who were already dead, hoping uh, or, you know, in some sort of act of obedience or some sort of hope that the benefits of baptism would flow on to someone already dead. But we really don't know, and it's not really unpacked. A couple of points to make. Paul doesn't approve of the practice. He just says it's happening. Um, He doesn't approve of it. Uh, And so that's, I think, an important thing to note. But on the other hand, he doesn't condemn it either. And Paul comes down pretty hard uh, on things that he sees as being particularly dangerous at other points in Scripture. Uh, And so whatever's going on, he doesn't perhaps... uh, And look, I'm making an argument from silence, but it seems like he's not really particularly upset by it either, necessarily. But there's a couple of things when we come to curly bits like this that, uh, that, uh, that are hard to understand. We let the rest of the Scriptures interpret the scripture that we have. And we need to pay attention to emphasis, right? So all we have in the Bible about this practice of people uh, being baptised on behalf of the dead is a a reference to the fact that it was, at least in Corinth, occurring at least occasionally. Doesn't mean we do it, okay? 
Uh, it doesn't mean it, it doesn't make it important. Um, it's there, but it's not here, and we don't do it. Emphasis is important. There's plenty of other things in Scripture to keep us very busy in understanding and obeying without getting caught up on one verse. But here's what Paul does say. Two really clear uh, instructions. Well, the first isn't so much an instruction as it is uh, his own personal testimony, his own living by example. This is his payoff uh, for the fact that Jesus is raised and there is a resurrection. Paul says, I die every day. In verse 31, that's what he does in light of the resurrection. He dies every day. Now, death at this point uh, can mean a couple of things, but he doesn't mean he's physically passing you know, through the grave each day. But he is engaging in confident self-denial. Confident self-denial. At least what he means when he says, I die every day, is that he is happy to say no to his own wishes in order to say yes to others. That's what death to self means. To say no to yourself and yes to others. A confident, even a joyful self-denial. He's not complaining about it. He's quite strident about the fact that he dies every day. Confident self-denial. means something else. It means being fearless in the face of danger. He's fearless in the face of danger. Uh, He talks of wild beasts uh, in Ephesus. And we don't know whether this was really wild beasts, you know, maybe in uh, in the arena as as some sort of uh, exercise in persecution. I think probably we would have heard about that if that's what it was. Uh, Wild beasts could be uh, his persecutors in general, uh, his attackers. Uh, We read uh, in another scripture a number of weeks ago where he talked about his enemies as dogs. uh, And it could be that these were people who were doing character assassination against him, attacking him uh, in character. Perhaps they were the beasts that he was fighting off. Uh, This danger, though, of persecution and death, I think, is bound up in all of this. And he was fearless in face of danger because Christ was raised and in Christ there is hope for resurrection. And finally, in this dying every day, he is joyfully approaching actual death, fearlessly approaching the actual date of his death, with joy, because he knows his sins are forgiven. He knows there is a life to come and a resurrection to follow. And the final payoff, he says, therefore, in verse 34, do not go on sinning. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. If there is a life after death, then it's no good to spend this life damaging your soul and hurting your own conscience when, when at the end we're going to have to give an account. Don't go on sinning. Don't spend this life as if the life to matter doesn't, doesn't matter or doesn't exist. Spend this life as if what happens next matters because it does, because it's real. Because there are, for some... There is, for some, a hope of resurrection. And it comes in being bound up in Christ. I'll say this just in in closing for today. The resurrection of Jesus isn't mainly about us. 
Uh, we've been looking at some of the payoffs for us. It's not mainly or only about us. It is mainly about him. It is mainly and primarily about Jesus Christ. It is his vindication. It is the proof of his glory, of the fact that he was approved by the Father. We do well to dwell uh, on the implications for us in Christ's resurrection, but we also do well to turn our attention at times away from ourselves, to glory in Christ for Christ's own sake, to bow the knee, to worship, to spend time in prayer, not just asking God for things, uh, but reflecting in heartfelt praise uh, towards him, who he is, uh, not just what he has done, uh, but his glory in the heavens uh, and in the life to come. Let's pray. Dear God, we, uh, we turn now uh, to you in praise. Uh, that you uh, are a God who is above death. And yet your own son uh, did not consider himself too good to die. Uh, but in his love, he tasted death himself. And with joy, he faced the cross because of what was to come. And we give you thanks, Lord, that, uh, that Jesus Christ is alive. Uh, we can know that his teachings have been approved by you uh, because you did not let him remain in the grave. We know that his own testimony about himself, that he is God in the flesh, uh, is true uh, because he wouldn't have been raised from the dead otherwise. He wouldn't have been approved uh, otherwise. We praise him because uh, he is going about uh, conquering the enemies and crushing death even now and killing sin even now. And Father, we pray uh, that uh, as we dwell on these things, you will help us uh, to obey the implications, that you will help us to joyfully face death every day, even our actual death when it comes. Uh, because there is life to come. There is real hope because of Jesus. Help us also to repent of our sins. Help us to turn away uh, from our own uh, passions and desires uh, and to have hearts uh, that are renewed with your will uh, and your desires so that we can pursue only what pleases you. We pray all this in the name of the glorious risen Christ. Amen.